Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Alright. Lauren. You can't see it because this is audio only, but my eyes did, I think, at least a good 180 roll at that. <laughs> there was some quality side eye going on right at that moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you were able to incorporate quality side eye strategically huh, into the conversation, <laughs> I will invite you back on the show. <laughs> oh, Dan, you were probably going to do that anyway. That is a challenge, and it is 3 a.m., so I am feeling a little bit perky, so I'm might just go for it. I guess I'll just start with introducing myself. My name is Lyran and I am for the first time on the podcast. This is episode 301. With me, of course, thank you. I wave to you. What? <laughs> you want me to... Li- okay, all right, I'm out of here. No, it's fine. It's fine. I don't have to wave. <laughs> the me and team. Always finding a way to settle on the salt. But... G'day, everyone. And I'm afraid that I know the form name of Maki. Or is it Maki? Yeah, Makalua. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say it for you because people go, go like, see the name and go, how the hell do I pronounce this? Makalua? So, I do not live in a salt mine, unlike Phil. <laughs> 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 I am the salt mine. <laughs> Apparently. Lautaro is the Mapuche. Their unique unit is the Malone Raider. Hey, we're going to borrow your horses and now attack you with the horses. It has a combat bonus when fighting near friendly territory and the pillaging costs less movement. So if you wanted to have that thing from earlier where you had the cheeky horse archer or horsemen just sitting around and they could just run right in. Yeah, these guys could do it too. But also run in and pillage all your stuff. Pillaging nice is to- really strong in this game. It's not to be underestimated. So that's a nice bonus. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, that's a nice city you used to have there. Shame I pillaged it. (laughs) Unlike making improvements, repairs don't cost builder charges. You can just mop things you're attacking for the resources and then repair them. And yeah, you lose some time from builder movement, but the yields are pretty well worth it consistently. Yeah, and usually if you're doing that right by the city, everything's roaded up or close to roaded up. And it's just like one turn for each tile that you pillage. So less than 10 turns to get the city back on its feet after you take it over. Fine by me. Well, yeah, and uh, Malone Raider, it comes at gunpowder. So, hey, there's your 55 strength musketman without the requirement of Niter. Oh, that's a good and point. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really good. Also, it's for movement. <laughs> Whee! Go across the map. As compared to the musketmen's too, yeah. This way it's going to take you like two units to entirely pillage down an early city. Mm. Is move, pillage, move, pillage, move, pillage, move, pillage. Oh, wait, what happened to your city? Oh, I happened. And they'll heal, too. <laughs> so, yeah, from the farms, they'll heal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's also the plus five combat strength within four tiles of friendly territory. Yeah, inferior territory. I didn't have an exact figure on the spot I'm looking at. Okay, their unique uh, structure or improvement, I guess this would be Chimamul, which is a 
big thing of a bunch of wooden statues, but it provides culture equal to 75% of the tile's appeal, and later in the game it gets a tourism bonus. Oh, hey, this is uh, breathtaking. It's worth six appeal. I put this unique improvement on there. It's worth four culture. I worked that. There's four monuments. Not to mention the fact that with any of the unique improvements for any of the civilizations, there's also that one time plus four uh, error score thing that you get. But plus four culture going on from very early on. Wow. And I think, yeah, with flight, you also get the tourism. One tourism per one culture. That's uh, standard from flight. It grants tourism to all culture uh, use. Plus four culture, plus four tourism. Not bad. You don't even necessarily have to be going for a culture victory. That could just be something to combat someone else going for a culture victory. Yeah. It might be a little situational if you like roll a jungle start, but still pretty Yeah, that's going to suck. So the unique leader ability, Swift Talk, basically defeat an enemy unit in their own territory. It decreases the loyalty of the owning city. So if you're on a border war with somebody else, you're defeating their units while they're on your soil, but then all the cities next to the border start, the loyalty starts dropping and dropping. Oh, look, the city just flipped. And now that that city is flipped over and I've got my unique musket bin, <laughs> please come try to take your city back, lol. Yeah, because you could get it in totally defensive war just like right on the border and let them come mm. over. Have fun with that. And it's like, yeah, let me just destroy all your units, destroy all your loyalty. And oh, look, your city's flipped and then they flip to me. Funny how that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of units... Toki, which is the unique civ ability, they get a bonus while combating civilizations already in a golden age. All the units trained in cities with an established governor gain more experience in combat. So there you go. Move Victor into that city that you just took. Although maybe with the loyalty pressure, you don't particularly need that. But you would like to do that because then you can construct more of your unique musket bin and they will gain 25% more experience. And then they can go up the promotion line and they can be a super fast promoted musket bin. You're welcome. <laughs> and then I move them into enemy lands and I defeat them within the borders of the enemy city. And then that city loses more loyalty. <laughs> I think the big part of this ability is actually that they get plus 10 combat strength against civilization in a golden age. If you're in a golden age, I don't think you're going to be able to conquer the Mapuche. Mm. Yeah, you'd almost have to be in a heroic or something. Yeah. Even then, that doesn't grant any additional bonuses. Yeah. You'd probably want to actually be in a, a normal age or in a dark yeah. age yourself. You want to be in a normal age against them. You could still do it late game. You could do it late game, but you wouldn't want to try it for most of the game. Yeah. Like, once you start flinging nukes or bombers or stuff, like the plus 10 strength isn't as difficult to overcome. Or if you're like an era in front of them, you can kind of do it. But yeah, that won't be fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up is Zulu. And my gosh, the weakest part of Zulu is the MP. <laughs> They're not that bad. <laughs> that, that is an absolute bonkers thing to say out loud. And it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess the MP are buffed spikes. So they get more flanking, less expensive than other combat units, the same area, low maintenance, and earn XP faster. The problem is they're still on the pike promotion line, so they're okay. But they're not why you would play Shaka. At least I would not play Shaka just for the MP. No, no. They've got specialty district for replacing the encampment. The Akonda is very good. Very good. They have faster access to uh, cores and armies, which is incredibly powerful. And then when the unique civ ability, when you take a city with a unit upgrades in the core army, if you have it unlocked, which of course you have it unlocked earlier, cores at mercenaries, armies at nationalism. 
So this sieve can reach a large number of cores and armies very quickly and train more. It's extremely powerful from that regard. And then you can have extremely powerful impies as you combine them together. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. you can capture cities with them and get them into cores or whatever, but your other generic units are arguably even better and can be quite ridiculous like this. Like knight cores and knight armies with the great general boost. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't stop after that. It just keeps getting worse to deal with. More fun if you have them, though. If you're the one with them. Also, if we're going to be talking about things about Zulu being buff, I mean, hello, Shaka. Oh, boy. <sighs> what do the kids say these days? He's quite swole. <laughs> <laughs> he has approximately 0% body fat. He was always like that. I mean, He's maybe super, you couldn't see buff. the six-pack in earlier hmm. versions, maybe. But I feel like Braxis has always represented him as such, so it's nothing new. Yeah, he works out. <laughs> the Zulu are like a landslide or an avalanche or something like that, that all of their abilities just go straight into that military onslaught and they just keep reinforcing each other. It would be yeah. an absolute nightmare. If I'm playing a game and I see a Zulu scout as the first thing, I'm like, uh, maybe we'll just reroll this. <laughs> If you can stop the snowball, then you're fine. In fact, seeing a Zulu scout gives you the most counterplay, because you can let Archer rush in before any of this becomes a problem. I actually got to mess my neighbor in my current DT game, but the good news is that they're still pretty far away. Everyone is. So it's already medieval era, and we're not even bordering. That's pretty lucky on DT. My gosh, half the time... It, it like... really is. I, I got like eight cities, and I don't share borders yet. Oh my, yeah. <laughs> At least on standard maps or smaller, every time yeah. I play Deity, yeah, when I settle my second city, it's too close for somebody, even if it's only three or four. It's a small map, camp. and with the normal amount of shifts and city states. It, it was 50 turns or something before I met someone. I think even more. <laughs> okay, well, enjoy that. <laughs> I, I sure will. I Deity maps like that. <laughs> Man, any kind of map that has any kind of land-based anything with these mps the three movement the increased flanking bonus the ability to get corson armies earlier and cheaper and then shaka's inherent ability with the plus five and great generals and increased combat from their conda this 41 combat strength you line that up right you could be pushing like doubling that strength yeah and their three movement. So your saving grace is to pray that you are on like an island plates or an archipelago or something that limits their ability. <laughs> uh, the historical agenda, because that also ties into why Shaka might choose to go after you, which, which is fantastic, because he gets something early. He yeah. likes course and armies. Except I don't have the ability to get them to yet, Shaka, but you do. So I can't curry your favor, and I'm beside you, and you've got this huge army. Uh, <laughs> hi. <laughs> it ranks the efforts of shifts against one another, right? But doesn't that include him? Yeah. It's not like the game would introduce that mechanic, <laughs> Congo, um, where <laughs> they're across the other side of the map and instantly hate you because you haven't sent missionary to them in two turns since you met them. It's only one of those positive historical agendas. It's only a positive thing if you use them. But you can't get that positive agenda because he's probably already declared war on you because he's got them already and he wants your stuff. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's fine. It makes the game more exciting. And unfortunately, the comment about Shaka working out made me think of He's like sexy and he knows that he's in an LMFA. <laughs> it's really distracting. I work out. 
<laughs> we get it. You lift. <laughs> yeah, he lifts himself up by dropping you <laughs> like a hot cake. Oh, there you go. Dan's traumatized by Buff Shaka. Oh, he's so shiny. I did not <laughs> expect that I would hear that somebody is small on this particular cast, <laughs> to be fair. True. <laughs> Recorded for episode 299 with Thank You, Makalua, The Me and Team, Drew Sane, and Monthar. The fact that this is a half-cost encampment alone is quite nice for two reasons, and that's just because uh, you can get it out faster, which means that you're going to get your great generals earlier, and also the fact that you get the hammer out of it is you're going to have the hammer out of it earlier as well. And housing, too, I guess. There is something that people were confused about, and I was a little confused about it because I forgot about it. They talk about cores and armies being made faster, and that's relating to something that I had forgotten about. If you have a level 3 harbor or a level 3 encampment, you are able to create cores and in this case, cores and armies through production at a cheaper cost, of course. So you don't just have to build two units. You can just get it two on a, on a discount. And the numbers are to get a core, it is 150% of the base cost to make a core. And it's 225% base cost of the unit for an army. So instead of having to need the tier three building. Instead, you can just get it at nationalism, which is a uh, industrial civic. That's quite good. Instead of making three units, you can make an army for a discount. It also gives more reason to have all three buildings in that district now instead of just or none. I mean, you would want to make the building so you can do the ability, even though though that is farther late game. But you still want some XP too when you make the unit. Yeah, that's one of the things where I always try to at least get a barracks before I make my main army. But straight up in the industrial era, you can just make very fast cores. You get 10 combat strength from cores and plus 7 from armies. So that's pretty much one shot. Yeah, plus 17 on that. Yeah, if you're stacking that with great generals and you're getting armies earlier in the game than is otherwise possible. And you're going to get more great generals because you have the encampments that are are cheap. You are looking at, if you get double great general, you're looking at one shots on contemporary units easily. It's not even close, especially if you still have oligarchy or something. You will one shot everything that is the same unit. Yes. Yeah, most time in vanilla, we only usually do the, the one tier two building just with that eureka bonus in the yeah. uh, encampments armory i think it is there's really no reason not to make military academy because it does give you hammers most of my games i don't even build but one um districts just for that eureka with the armory do you remember in instant five when we learned about the hun's abilities and we're like wow that's kind of scary i kind of feel the same way on shaka Plus 50% for ranged and melee units, you know, wow. There's, you can still get that card as well that proves the reduction on encampments. Just two generic tile improvements, kind of again, the tile improvements, most of the new tile improvements coming with a particular civilization and then unique to that particular civilization. But we've got two of them. These improvements are also tied specifically to governors, specifically one governor, and that's Liang. So 
this is kind of one of those shop your governor around in a city in order to be able to construct this, and they can just go from city to city to city that you want to be able to place these in. We've got the fishery. Yields one food and plus one food if adjacent to a sea resource. Tier one. Uh, the first promotion can take it already. So you appoint, promote lunch, and then you got the fishery. Yeah. And then there's the city park, which yields two appeal and one culture, plus one amenity if adjacent to water, lake, or ocean. The added appeal is nice, of course, but, you know, I mean, it also comes in the promotion tree of the governor, so it kind of sounds like something that would appear later in the game, but no, if it's something that you really want, the plus one amenity is is nice, because at some point in the game, you get large enough cities, large enough an empire, man, I've got three copies of Jade, but, you know, the amenity is only good for one time, so mm. I need something. I would rather not to have to construct, say, an entertainment district in this city right now, and... It's kind of one of those, well, if you've, if you've got the tiles as well, yeah. uh, I don't think there's any limit for the city park. There's no limit to that. So it's, oh, I've got this empty tundra tile or desert tile. I need an amenity, then you can go for it. As I said, the key thing is just shop Liang around wherever you want it to be. You know, it's not like, oh, you move Liang out of the city and now the fishery in the city park no longer has any effect. So there. Yeah. As uh, was said, the fishery is level one at aquaculture. It's level three for uh, parks and recreation. The city park is nice. I just feel, kind of feel like the fishery is kind of like, oh, well, duh. It in itself yields plus one food, and then plus one food if adjacent to a sea resource. So Why would you not? It's better than nothing. So you might as well yeah. just put <laughs> one on every water tile that you're not using. That's the problem, though. Are you going to actually work these tiles, and what are they giving you other than the food? And what is that food letting you work? Because this isn't like Civ Four, where you can convert food into production so directly. So this is a situational build for sure. If you need the food to work some production on land, I could see doing it. But otherwise, it's costing you a lot to build a builder and to uh, make these fisheries on a coastal city. You need a good reason to do it. So it's a very situational improvement in my mind. Well, what I like about the fishery is if you couple it with a harbor and a lighthouse, you get free food at least from water tiles. So if you work the water tiles, you have more food so you can have more citizens working in uh, districts or on tiles where you don't produce enough food. So that yeah. they can produce food for other citizens. And that, you, that's you need that, that stuff that, first, though. Yeah. But that's something that wasn't really possible in uh, the base game. And I like that it's a possibility now. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely have use. It's that's just something to consider. You want to make sure that there's some way you can convert that food into something else. And yes, populating a district is one of the ways. Uh, working mines or lumber mills, probably mines, uh, is another way. They are unique in the fact that other than the Nation Kapung, they're the only thing that you build on coast tiles. Oh, uh, and, and the polder, of course. But oh, don't, situation don't yeah. bring up the polders. <laughs> why? But why? You can right. build like three. I had a continent-wide <laughs> empire, and I could build three because of that bloomin' really specific tile requirement yeah. of yeah. three touching land, okay, and flat. And that just never seemed to coalesce. Yeah. But for the fishery, I think it's also beneficial. And yes, it's the niche case kind of thing. But up to this point in the game, it would be, okay, what else are we going to put on, say, our desert tile or our tundra tile? We've got lots of empty water tiles, probably. And then if this is right on the coast, it's like, okay, there's not identified concentration of fish there, as in like a fish resource or a crab resource. But 
Certainly, you'd be able to get something out of it, particularly at some point in the game. You'd be able to get some kind of food out of it. So it gives you something to do. It could give you the potential. Shouldn't say give you something to do. We don't have just workers anymore. They've got specific builder charges. But it could help you in that particular case to say that, okay, seeing as how I've got some food resources, it would make sense that the fish doesn't see the line on the hex and say, oh, I can't cross over into this. This is outside of the fish tile. No, they're going to go to the other tile. They're going to swim out there, and it gives you a chance to capture that and maybe grow just that little bit more as long as you got the housing to support it. I also just like that now you can basically just fill up all water tiles with water parks and fisheries and uh, fishing boats and reefs. I just love that it's more filtered out now. Okay, over in Civ 6 general discussion, over at Civ Fanatics, Isel started a thing about, he was wondering what various existing abilities have new synergies that people have discovered in Rise and Fall. He said a big surprise for him was Spanish conquistadors. They convert a city instantly to your religion when you take it from your bell like they always did, but it's much stronger in Rise and Fall because you get a very nice plus three era score points if you convert a city you're at war with. He's saying if you steamroll a neighbor with a conquistador army like he did to England in the most recent game, you easily earn yourself a mid-game golden age. I had not thought of that, but that's a fun thing to try. There's one from Ever Adrift. Uh, Ever Space Adrift. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The increased significance of population has led to two downloadable content sieves, Australia, Khmer, and especially Indonesia more powerful. The increased population size can help win both loyalty wars more easily and survive dark ages more intact. I think one synergy probably has to be Rome because Rome gets that bonus where they get every city they plop down they get a free monument in and now the monuments are also tied to the loyalty game it means that you have a stronger core straight from the start and to that end in the thread Thormador says Rome should be fun with Ancestral Hall and Magnus's promotion to not lose the population when training a settler so Ancestral Hall right uh, plus 50% production on constructing settlers rather than having to run the colonization policy card so you can spam out settlers and have the free monument and road to the new city and you can mm-hmm. also still put in colonization and so get 100%, 100% bonus so and somebody uh, who is it Exquisitor noted there's a negative synergy for early war if the captured cities flip too easily you really have to have your first governor ready for starting wars or it's going to be flip 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 all day every day yeah all you can use that for some xp farming depending on the situation yeah but annoying if you were just trying to get your neighbors down before anybody else came along you know yeah i also see a nice mention of the japanese unique ability with government plaza which basically just means that well, every a government plaza gives plus two to every adjacent district for Japan, which is Ooh. quite nice. Mm. That could be really good. Oh, every Civ now gains a bonus based on their diplomatic visibility, so France uh, always yes. has at least one. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, there's actually a reason for me to go for diplomatic visibility now. G-Best talks about, I think, the new ability of Persia to get an additional plus 5 loyalty, so plus 10 in total for occupied cities with a garrison unit is quite strong. You don't need to move governors to your conquered cities, as long as, of course, that's also still garrisoned. But I think that in and of itself also ties into the comment about captured cities flip too easily. Sometimes it's not just about what city I'm going to capture or what cities I'm going to capture, but what order I capture those cities in. Sometimes it's worthwhile to capture a more developed city First, by getting rid of the Carpet of Doom, yeah, they probably have greater bombard strength, but if you capture that city, then the loyalty pressure that it's exerting, or was exerting as being part of the enemy, is no longer being applied, because you've occupied that now. So you can play around with that, too, in addition to the garrison units, plus moving in the governors. 
Yeah. The only thing you need to watch for, though, would be the capital in that case, because, of course, you can't raise that. Oh, gosh, the capital's really exerting this pressure. Uh, that's okay. I'm just going to go in and raise that. Oh, crap. Now I've captured the city. There's still all of these units around that can retake the city, but it's actually not going to matter because it's just going to flip anyway. Ah, oh, darn it. <laughs> Sometimes you got to watch that. I'm sure more of these will come about. I mean, shoot, we're only a couple of weeks, right, since the expansion came out? Yeah, a little yeah. more than as of this recording, yeah. so... And, of course, most people have been playing with the expansion shift, so... Yeah. Well, they don't come across the base game uh, changes. Speaking of those cities that you take and maybe you're not able to hold on to... They want to flip back, but they don't flip back right away. Oh, no, 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 no. Or cities of your own on the fringe of the Empire that you haven't done a good job at. They've got loyalty pressure from another civilization. Even if it's just one. Even if it is just one. Oh, no, 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 no. They become a free city first. Are free cities too aggressive? Question mark. This is also from Civilization Fanatic Center, and it's from Brutus 2. A2 Brutus? Ha, ha, ha. I am fantastic. <laughs> Wow. I'm not touching that. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> I seem to remember in a live stream, so this would be from developer Fraxis Games and publisher 2K Games, I think, but anyway, that although we were always in a state of war with free cities, they would mostly play defensively and just protect their own territory. You are absolutely in a state of war with uh, free cities. Yeah. This has not been my experience. In several games now, I have been able to flip cities to free, and then the turn begins to count down until they will join my civilization. The thing is, while waiting for the free city to flip, they spawn a bunch of latest tech units and move into my territory and start attacking me. I almost always <laughs> end up just capturing free cities, even if they are going to peacefully flip to me soon, because otherwise they will keep sending units against me, which means I have to leave my troops there anyway. Anyone else seen this? Is this working as intended? I would like to think this is not working as intended, but this is what it is doing. And yes, not only does this free city window seem to be odd, given the reason that it became free anyway, but in X number of turns, it's going to become yours, but it chooses you just as equally, and you're there, and they attack you, even though the next turn, they're ready to join you. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. Yeah. I, I actually lost a unit at some point because the cavalry from Free City walked out of its territory into my territory to uh, finish the unit off. And that was kind of annoying. I mean, I understand that they defend themselves, but I think they should just stay in their own borders and only attack if enemy units are inside their borders, or maybe with ranged units if they can attack from inside their own borders. I'm not convinced that they should be immediately at war with everybody anyway. I could definitely see it whoever they revolted from. Yes, for sure. After that, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. It's especially egregious when the reason they became a free city is because of loyalty pressure from somebody else. Yeah. And they're at war with everybody, including the one that they are favoring. So it's even more egregious. But yeah, I agree with you, Phil, that you become a free city. I have revolted. I have revolted against you, not against all civilization. I'm not a barbarian. <laughs> well, apparently they are though and that's weird yeah and sometimes protecting your own territory might mean that they might just go maybe a little bit outside of their territory it depends on how many units they've got what those units happen to be but they should be defensive because okay we've just revolted we need to be on guard for being taken over again 
I mean, if another Civ wants to go ahead and declare war on that free city, then I could see that being a situation where it's, hmm, sounds like you're interfering in the internal affairs of another Civ, right? Because this free city, technically, I mean, it's, okay, it's a civil war. This is what's going on. This is what should be happening. And I could see later on in the game, maybe there's a Cassius Belly against that when other nations of the world, just like in reality, start paying attention to what's going on in the borders of other civilizations. But why the free city would want to take on anybody and everybody after that, I mean, they would like to remain a free city, wouldn't they? You know what? We're tired of these people pushing us down. I'm going to go and poke, poke, poke the rest of the bears of the world and hope one of them come back and then I can become their... Mm, dependent. <laughs> Good save. I, I was going to use another word there, but <laughs> dependent, end quote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <sighs> if it was a measure of, I think there's also some balancing questions here without a doubt, but what would be more interesting would be it becomes a free city because there's the chance that it's not going to be taken over by another civilization, even if that loyalty pressure is being applied by that one sieve especially if there's more than one sieve that's applying pressure on it that combined is greater than the loyalty pressure being applied than the civilization that either founded it or otherwise held onto it, maybe it decides, if not becoming a sieve on its own, because I think that's problematic mechanically. It's like, hey, there's a new sieve in the middle of the game. They have one city. I wonder how long they'll last. <laughs> yeah. But maybe they could become a special type of city-state that gives some kind of value some kind of measure, I don't know, some kind of yield, some combination of things that make it attractive for people to go and want to protect and to help it stay free. And so even if you're not the suzerain of them, then maybe you could get some diplomatic relief if perhaps if you're a you know you're a warmonger or otherwise you decide to go to war to protect them in order to remain free and you declare war on another sieve to stop that aggression. The free city's taken, you liberate them, you allow them to become a free city again, you donate units to them, something that helps curry the favor, so that in particularly in the case when there's loyalty pressure from more than one sieve, it's, we're free, we want to be free, we're interested in relations with other sieves, perhaps, <laughs> other than the people who we just broke away from. But the way it stands right now, and I think I mentioned before, it just seems like an unnecessary stopgap. And... It's counterintuitive. Hey, I just applied loyalty pressure for you to be free. Now you're attacking me. What are you, drunk? <laughs> you're drunk, Free City. Go home. I think if you limited it so that Free City units couldn't leave the city territory, I think that would probably work. Yeah, it could work. Given how transitory a Free City is in the game, I could see that, yeah. But then in the hopes that, it, depending upon how it became free, again, the, the amount of pressure, the source of the pressure not just then necessarily automatically become another Civ's city. Especially if the loyalty pressure is just that much more. You know, it's just like, oh, so I'm just going to use numbers just for the sake of argument, not anything specific to the mechanics. Oh, hey, there's 12 loyalty coming from this Civ instead of 10. Okay, I'm going to go over to you. Uh, well, is that really necessarily enough to curry the favor of the other Civ? Maybe that's just enough to say, oh, I don't see why we have to be... Loyal be part of any Civ's empire. We can just be... Oh, man, this sounds dirty. Have relations with whatever Civ's on the map we want to have relations with. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> hey I, I have to say, I, I would love a more dynamic system where, indeed, um, cities can break away and become interacting parties to uh, other Civ's. Maybe even if a bunch of cities break away together, that they could form a new civilization somehow. Though, of course, that's a question of... How does it work? 
I would love a return of uh, how it worked in Shift 4 with Vessels. And I have seen some people complain that, hey, I can't talk to them. You should be able to talk to them. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Free City, it, it's transitory. They've revolted. Really, at that point, there is no established government. It's just all we know is we are united in the fact that we want to get rid of this leadership. Being a leader of a revolution and then being a leader either in peacetime or being a leader in the absence of fighting against somebody else is very, very different. It's like, I know how to fight to get rid of somebody, but I don't know how to now be that somebody now that we got rid of that person that we don't want leading us. So I could see in that period, no, you're not going to be able to talk to them. Oh, Dan, there's always a proper dictator there. That shouldn't last forever. If they break away, indeed, uh, wartime and peacetime are very different. So you can explain very well that you can't immediately talk to them. But at some point, either there is going to be a leader for peacetime, or the whole thing is going to collapse on itself. So maybe after a certain amount of time, you should be able to talk to them. Ten turns? <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so, something like that. Ten turns, 15 turns. Well, at least on online speed, sometimes they'll flip before that number of turns will pass, but that's something else, I guess. That's all right, too, if it flips before you can talk to them. I've not seen it myself, but I've seen it pop up in a number of threads that makes me believe that it could happen, that there are some situations where free cities can actually start imparting loyalty on each other and make this sort of like free city block. And that could actually be very problematic for anyone nearby if they're constantly at war and constantly pumping out reasonably top-tier units to make anyone nearby's life that just that little bit worse. This one is, uh, I've had a few posts in this one. Who actually started this thread? Maximus Platimus just said, basically, it's super annoying that AIs are conquering city-states. Why well, put in a mechanic of diplomacy suzerainty only to have it rendered moot in the first 20 turns? It's out of control. And man, this uh, this started quite the discussion. I think the opening post is oh, a, little wow, yeah. poorly, uh, a little bit poorly presented, which has resulted in some of the arguments. But ultimately yeah I, the city states are in the game for a reason and so are the interactions with them right now we don't have a lot of good tools in terms of preemptively defending them short of just like pitching a tent militarily nearby like there's no deterrence factor because there's no auto defense factor there's nothing like civ 5 where you proclaim that you're going to defend them or anything like that so we're missing that but also just they don't scale with difficulty and that's my biggest problem with them and it's caused a few exchanges, but ultimately that's the issue. The AIs that are civs scale up and get more and more units on high levels, and the city states don't. So it's very easy for the AI to just take them within the first 20 turns with their starting units. In other words, they're free settlers to steal. And in a lot of cases, this becomes true for the player as well. You crank out a few units, you can snipe them from the AI, or you can just conquer them yourself without too much difficulty or trouble. And so now you get a settler that you didn't pay for, in, in essence. And there's not a lot of incentive to do otherwise. So people pointing out that the AI should do this because it's cost-effective are right. But from a design perspective, it shouldn't be so cost-effective. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, it, it's... It's interesting, because I, I compare it to, say, Civilization V. Man, look at the strength of that city, its defensive strength, as compared to Civs. It's in a much better position to defend itself. Again, as Phil said, oh, someone in this particular game has reached this particular era, so they're able to upgrade all their warriors now to musketmen, even though I know that's a big leap. And, oh, now the city-state has that as well. 
then you get that unit, and then it ties also into the defensive strength. So it still makes, ooh, we should go after that city-state, because it's not declaring war on a Civ proper, except that city-state has the ability to defend itself better. So I think there's that. You mentioned about the not having a major Civ being able to pledge to protect, which is something that can be announced. Yeah, it's kind of annoying that, oh my gosh, this Civ, I'm looking at you especially, Macedon, starts near a lot of city-states, and they go, om nom 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 nom, or you're Mongolian, you get the increased combat strength against city-states, and you take them out, but you come into contact with other Civs, we realize that those were once city-states, that they were once free, now we're recognizing not only the fact of we not getting the benefit of that being a city-state by being able to send envoys to them, but that empire is much more powerful, that could be an instant, potentially, if you get to the point of, and like you've taken some city-states and you tell them to stop, or you tell them, enough, we know what it is that you have done, there's no more. Any more aggression on your part is going to have a chain reaction of not only other people declaring on you, but it's not just a matter of saying, okay, we declare war on you, that's not very nice taking over the city-states, to then actually have you and, of course, the AI then go do something about it to make the AI or even other human player think, you know what, maybe I'm actually better off leaving that city-state alone or (laughs) trying to compete for its favor itself through envoys to deny it to somebody else and take their bonus, rather than just going and conquering city-state after city-state after city-state. It doesn't exactly address the snowball effect initially before initial contact. So that also goes to what you were saying, Phil, about mechanically, it shouldn't be so wonderful to just go and take those city-states as well as their ability to think to defend themselves. If you balance those two things, then it's not going to be, how the heck does this Civ already have six cities, and it's turn 50? How did they do that? Oh my gosh, half of their empire were city-states. Well, if you're playing on Deity, they'll have that anyway, but yeah. Uh, Theoretically (laughs) speaking, this is exactly what the emergency system is all about. If you see Civs taking city-states, there's emergencies, and you can gang up and try and take them down. But the problem is that most of the big city state taking happens in the first big push at the start of the game before you've met everyone, before that sort of emergency system really comes into play. Yep. It feels like this is the perfect system to fix the problem. Unfortunately, it can't be used because it's just too early in the game. The way that it is right now, a Cassius Belly, a Liberation War, potentially better for you than engaging in the emergency situation because the reward for participating in that and what you get out of that The emergency in and of itself is not necessarily attractive to then be like, okay, now I'm going to be at war with this other civilization, either for the duration of the emergency or perhaps later on, too. I don't want to put myself out there. So it's also kind of like, yeah, man, that sucks that you've taken them over, but maybe it's less now about making them city-states again and more my just taking over that civilization, which means that now, rather than, say, Toronto becoming liberated after the Macedonians took them over, I as Rome, it's now a Roman city and I take them over because I don't see the incentive for me to make that city-state free. I know as a human player, if I liberate this city-state, what type of city-state is it? What are their bonuses? What's the suzerain bonus, but also just even the base type as well? Yeah. is also an interesting question. Because then at that point, it might be, no, it's actually worth allowing them to be free, allowing me to have the envoys there. Even if I don't become their suzerain, would I just be happy that the benefits that I would get from them? Because I know... When I have met a city-state, and again, I'm going to use Macedon as an example, there's this rage about, oh man, they just went and they took over Jerusalem, are you kidding? Or they've just declared war in Jerusalem, come on, as compared to, say, a religious one to, say, a commercial one or a science one, where it's like, wait, I'm sorry, they're attacking Babylon? They're attacking Muscat? Are you kidding me? Oh, hell no. 
That was going to be my cash cow. Yeah, all gone up and done it. Yeah. This was an issue before the expansion pack came out. Yeah. There's no question about that. But it, maybe it's just, uh, I just feel like there's a lot of conversation about it now, just because it's, oh, this is still a thing. People are getting back to Civ Six after having left it for a while, or, okay, I guess I'll finally pick up Civ Six. And what is with this AI conquering city-states? I think it's also gotten worse as the AI has gotten better. Yeah, and this is good behavior from the AI in contrast yeah. to a lot of the things the AI does. It just it shouldn't be mechanically so easy. Yeah. I also like the option that some people have thrown out of just states should get more bonuses or maybe even have free walls. Yeah, I like bonuses more because you can scale it, but walls also yeah, exactly. can work. Vision of, <laughs> you declare war on this city-state? Hmm, the first Civ to declare war on that city-state gives it instant city walls. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, dang, I should have anticipated that. <laughs> There's definitely some work to be done here. Yeah. Any notion about, oh, you shouldn't be able to attack a city-state until turn X. No, 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 no. Yeah, that's... Yes, no. Yes, yes, no. And no, that's no, no. way to solve it. Yeah, exactly, no. It's less about the action the AI is taking and what can you do in response to that in a meaningful and timely fashion. Maybe even also to avoid some of the issues of, my gosh, look at how many city-states they spawned closely to and they went, you know, raffle stomping. Maybe just a little bit more spread about where the city-states are. Because, shoot, we've even got some issues of city-states being really close together and it's like, oh, well, this would be a nice contiguous empire. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm already here. Might as well keep going. Yeah. Because then that could trigger, oh, but by the time I get to that city-state, by the time I construct enough units and or buy enough units and get them in position, I'm probably going to be in contact with somebody else. Or they're going to be in contact with somebody else. And then that could maybe tie into, oh, crap, I just met this city-state. Oh, somebody's already pledged to protect them. Era points and era score. I absolutely love this system. Since the expansion has come out, I was not able to stop playing until just a few days ago. And that's primarily because of the era score. And it feels so great to get from a Dark Age to a Heroic Age. It's nice that we have this reference. Yes. To have all of this information. More easily laid out, because the one that's in the Civilopedia is just like my eyes crossed trying to read it. Yeah. Exactly. It is in the Civilpedia, but the accessibility of this information from this link is available in a Reddit post, but it's also available as a spreadsheet, which is fantastic. It will tell you the moment type, the moment description, which is also very important because sometimes you read the moment type and you think, uh, I think I know what this means, but I'm not exactly certain. Yeah. Era score. Also, the minimum and in some cases, the maximum game era, obsolete era, which does apply to some of these, which is kind of interesting. And, of course, we could spend lots and lots of time talking about them, but really this topic was more about being aware of what they are and the timing of certain things. So if you're trying to do this, you know, go into a Dark Age and then slingshot into a Heroic Age, maybe you don't want to finish constructing your first water-based unit because then that would put you over the threshold of being in a Dark Age and have to reload a save. And sometimes, also, more generally, it, I know some people have said, so I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just getting error score for what it is that I would be doing already. There's some of that, but I also think, again, it's about the timing of it. And it's also about maybe things that you didn't do before. And this just gives you kind of an incentive to go out and explore. I remember, quote-unquote, back in the day, um, Sid Meier, whose, of course, name is still on the game, 
One of the reasons that they had recon units to people to go and explore the world, we put out little goodie huts, now known as tribal villages, to give people an incentive, even though the incentive was to find where other people are on the map so you knew where to go kill them or to avoid and be aware of them. So in this case, this is giving you another reason to try to go and do something, and the reward you get is not just the error score, and now you're in a particular age, but there are specific policies tied to the age, which can then allow you to get even more error score. Uh, my favorite is definitely later on if you're looking for the call to arms <laughs> <laughs> ability, where you get error score for defeating either a uh, core or an army, plus two, plus three error score. I think it's worth mentioning that the ones that will give you five, because there are, in fact, five? Yes, five of them, yes. And they're all very self-explanatory. World's first circumnavigation, I was so happy to see that, because it's been a while since we actually got something other than yeah. if the game even acknowledged it. It's like, did anyone notice? Why do we even care anymore? World's first flight, first trading post in all civilizations. It's an interesting one. World's first to meet all civilizations, and the final foreign city taken. Yeah, there's lots of twos and lots of ones and even threes, but we'll Mavis just also mentioned the fours. Yeah. World's first religion to adopt all beliefs. Unique building constructed. World Wonder completed, Rival Holy City converted, Foreign Capital taken, Unique District completed, Emergency successfully defended, First Discovery of a Continent, Unique Tile Improvement built, and Unique Unit Marches. And just with those in the 5-error score and the 4-error score, it's, well, you're going to do this once. You know, you're the world's first to complete it. Not only will you not get that error score again, but nobody else can repeat that. Sometimes it's also, well, anybody can construct their first naval unit, but once they've constructed their first naval unit, they can't get that again. However, there are those that are, you know, like in the one or two points that are, hey, every single time you complete a specialty district, you get an error score. Every time you complete a trade route, you get an error score. And it's one of those things where you then look at, okay, what else is going on in the game? What's the likelihood that I'm going to be able to do that or want to do that? It's like, hmm, every single time I complete a trade route, I'm at war with everybody on the map. I can't get to a city-state, and even if I could, <laughs> there's the suzerain of somebody else. So maybe I don't want to take that one. <laughs> yeah, I love that, that as well. At some point, I got into a dark age. I hadn't been doing well, and it was just three of the four uh, dedications I could make. I was like, I'm not going to get error score from this. There were two that were where I could get error score from war, but I was behind on science. So I didn't want to fight any wars. And the third was a uh, heartbeat of steam. And I just didn't have the technologies yet to build the buildings that would give me error score. So I was just looking at that and I realized that I was just not up to the level to get the error score. And I loved the feeling of, yeah, you're not doing well enough to get these options. So you have to go for traders and to then have to adjust my playstyle in order to do better in the next era. Although the Dark Age does have some nice stuff in it that you can use, True, true. I think inevitably we'll end up talking about some more of these historic moments as we talk about other things. Although, as kind of a mention for this topic, there are two that make me smile, and at the same time, I'm just kind of like, oh, really? Which is the old World Wonder Constructor or the old great person recruited. You know, though better suited to a past era, they still contribute great things to our civilization. (laughs) Yeah. A lesser era score than that. And I'm like, uh, mm. <laughs> It's something, at least. I don't know. It really depends on the great person and the wonder, does it not? <laughs> In the later era, science victory, things like world's first landing on the moon is one era point. 
And awards first Mars component, one era point. National Park doesn't even grant an era point. I feel like in, in the late era, it's hard to uh, generate era points without fighting wars. And that's sometimes a bit just feels unrewarding when you're creating a national park after national park. You're going into space and you barely get any error score from it while you feel like you're doing really well. When it's a, a substantial something, like, for example, you know, you've launched a satellite into orbit. That's something that you're going to be doing once, but it's a big accomplishment. That took a lot of yeah. time and effort. That should be a greater error score than, say, constructing a park, which you could do more than once. Yeah. So I think there's definitely some scaling in there that should be taken into account. Because you don't want to be able to chain stuff, but at the same time, yeah. and you might say, well, Dan, you did not construct the satellite in order for plus one error score, did you? I mean, really, there's something else that you're getting. But if the error scores are supposed to be a reflection of your people's outpouring of happiness and pride, then it, it does seem rather underwhelming. You know, it's like, hey, we launched a satellite into orbit. Eh. Yeah, one error score. Even if you're the first one to get into space, while, for example, extracting an artifact is also one error score. Shouldn't you get more from launching the first satellite into space than from extracting an artifact or placing a city close to another civilization? There's definitely some valid questions there, as opposed to trying to make up a controversy. Recorded for episode 283 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Mian team, Mad Jin, and Mega Bears fan. The AI in its present state is so terrible, even at the short range stuff, that we should probably patch up its algorithms in the strategic level and uh, short term evaluation because those are simpler and it's really bad at those too. It's actually not any simpler. Someone who studies chaos theory might disagree. Yeah. It's not that simple per se. Actually, I think it's the AI is not even set up properly structurally to uh, handle different levels of thinking and different uh, abilities. If an AI needs, say, units, it should be able to start picking off each city that has an encampment or depending on if it can just straight up buy them. Like, okay, I need new units. Where do I put them? Where do I get them? I need them in these cities. Okay, so that city has a priority listing for what it needs to do and say that city to produce those units needs another building or is about to go bad so it needs another builder so they can get the amenities up because everybody's already upset stuff like that that's all relatively straightforward to actually balance out i think part of the problem for the ai is the way that they've always done it when it comes to the rng on what it chooses to do it's good to use weighted numbers for picking things because it makes it relatively a good 40% of the time, maybe, it'll pick the right thing. Well, you um, also but, don't want it to be so cookie-cutter build order that it's predictable, it, and you know they're going to bring a settler out on the X turn, so you just look for oh, it. Oh, no, no. Yeah. No, no, it's not that. No, it's <laughs> well, that's why that. weighted decision-making helps, because it's yeah. not consistent to the point where you can break Well, it. the problem with the way they do it, not with weighting in general, but just the way they do it, is that they leave all the options open, even the bad ones. Oh. So it might have three choices that are all pretty decent to make, depending on its strategy. So therefore, any one of those could work towards its strategy-ish. But then it leaves in options four and five, which are all like 0.1 or two points on the scale, which shouldn't ever be done and wouldn't be done by any reasonable player. But they're still there, so it's a chance that they could do it. 
So you, you could assign zero weight based on conditions, and probably should assign zero weight based on certain conditions in a weighted system. Yes. Yes, or at least trim off the worst. Section. Well, that's essentially what that's doing. Like you evaluate this option, it has zero. You never do it in this circumstance ever. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it helps, or you just only when you go to make the choice, you only consider the top couple choices, and that would at the very least trim up some yeah. weird decision making. But not everything has to be weighted. I mean, if you have a city, it's pretty obvious in the city that it should put this district here, that district there, that district there. Or this is the total sum of my potential farming ability here. So how much housing could I realistically get out of this city? Therefore, you don't want an RNG where it's going to go, well, I might get four or five districts when there's only enough housing in that city for two. And that's the kind of thing where being predictable isn't really that damaging. Even if a player were to be predictable against another player, like, yeah, okay, he's going to build the farms in the best spot. That's not (laughs) not rocket science. You probably should. Yeah. Or when do I choose to remove that farm? Yeah. Because I need a district. Or, hey, look, I can get this wonder. Should I get this wonder? Let's RNG that. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, can you build the wonder in a reasonable time frame? And that's the other part. Because you're like, oh, I need industrial districts so I can go build this. It's like, okay, but how long is that going to take? Oh, that's going to take you 30 turns to build that industrial district because you chose to build it before you had the production to build it. Oh, in those 30 turns, you could have actually punched out a bunch of units instead. Maybe so. not in a city that would take 30 turns. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288. 7659. That's 44121288 Polly. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series official website at thepolycast.net. I mean, can you imagine Polycast episode 301, Quality Side-Eye? I'm pretty sure that has never been the title of anything ever. <laughs> I think it's the awesomest title. Which will help us in a Google search result, so... Okay. Um, I, I don't know if we want to be associated well, with some of the responses you'd get. On, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Who is going to search for that, though? I will say the AI barbs, since I think it was not the last patch, but maybe the patch before, they have got more pillagey with their... Yeah naval units so i've not seen it myself but it should probably happen at some point yeah probably although i'm also interested what the player gets when they pillage one not that i see a ton of these from the ai but it would be good to know basically it's a completely different equation from Sephora where you'd get flooded by just 10% strength variance barbs is all you could get <laughs> so basically every time you fought it was nearly a coin flip that was awful as I'm the outro for today. Um, I'd like to thank all of our hosts today. So that's me, Byte, Dan, Marky, Phil, and Lorraine. I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for coming in and listening to our polycast today. So let us know what you thought of talk. What moment type do you like the best? And on that note, I'm 
call the 301st polycast to an end and may your one more turn not end up with the sun rising and realizing that you have responsibilities and oh god i didn't get any sleep <laughs> the only problem there is that responsibilities bit just just avoid those <laughs> easier said than done oh that's true <laughs> <laughs> No one said it would be easy. Also, I think Byte took a page from Madgen's book of Get Out and just decided to sugarcoat it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that. In other words, Get Out, but I didn't say it. But I thought it for sure. So, Leyran, you'd agree to come back on the show, right? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to return sometime. Oh, very good. And uh, I'm not going to ask you, Byte, because, you know, we already have your money. <laughs> What money? Exactly. <laughs> what money? <laughs> Is this like when I get the 10% raise every year? I think it's like that. Yeah, 10% of nothing. Oh, we don't talk about that part, Mackie. Oops, <laughs> <laughs> too late. I just did. Yeah, well, mistakes were made. Going to bid everyone adieu because I've got to be up in an hour and a half. Oh, and I probably God. need that extra hour and a half sleep. <laughs> so, right. wait, wait, wait. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You said you probably, so it doesn't mean you definitively need it then. That's that's what I'm hearing. Dan. <laughs> no. It, it's one of Let those the man times. Go to bed. It's one of those times where I said probably in inverted commas to imply that oh god, I definitely need some sleep. Just bail. Just go. Ignore Dan. So have a good day, everyone. Until we next talk about people being swole and quality side eye. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Buzzing in the chat asked how I was doing, and I'm like, fine, how are you? Tired but surviving. Wish I could start Game of Civ on a difficulty that posed any kind of challenge without being doubt on turn 20-something for AI cheaty reasons. Well, first I was going to go brag, 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 but oh, 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 the problem here is the AI dowing on turn 20. Well, well, there's most for that, but <laughs> I understand that some people don't like uh, that as the answer to their requests. Hashtag Modcast Synergy. You're quote-unquote full guest, so you will get credit for this appearance, unlike <laughs> those that run episode 300. Damn it, Dan. <laughs> I probably screwed that pronunciation up, too. Sorry, I do not know all these. Yeah, you should pronounce things only correctly, like me. But even if you did mess it up, Mackie, it was really, really cute. So Makahalua. <laughs> Timit. <laughs> That's probably how you would say that, actually. Yeah. If we're going with that. <laughs> I do find the Machu Picchu really fascinating, except I am the only person this is going to affect, is their city list is bonkers. Looking at that and trying to figure out how I'm going to do my city map of them is turning into a mild headache. That must be considering it's randomized other than the capital every single time you play the game. Wow. Don't hurt yourself. And not cities, they're regions, and I'm like, how am I going to show that on a map? Mm, at the risk of mentioning hashtag, but I'll do it anyway. Hashtag first world Civ player problems. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> True. I'm going to hide your caps, Kay, for that. Ooh, we're making a game out of it. Interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> Tribal village contacted description. A tribal village was contacted, giving strength to our budding cities. Budding? Buddy? Civ 6 is sexist. Next time on Polycast. No kidding. Whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. We have to <laughs> just, just drop that in right at the end. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> you just gotta, you gotta set the, throw that one out there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a good thing as a Civ player for you to love the new mechanics because they will not love you back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this got weird real quick. Just wait, what yeah, are you talking about? Oh. Yeah. You know what? By your tolerance is pretty high for you to say this this late in the podcast. <laughs> I like that extra weird. I almost failed, but I succeeded in the end. Recorded February 24th. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.